0: It's another blessing that you and I have been given this evening to assemble in the way that we are. So many of our brethren around this world perhaps are meeting this very night with challenges, with difficulties, with threats from governments or even from others who, though not in the government, they're not too happy about people meeting in the name of Jesus Christ. And yet you and I can meet in the peacefulness of this hour on the first day of this week, and start this week off in the best possible way. We've already been blessed earlier today, and certainly we can meet again tonight and encourage each other, and even more importantly, to magnify the name of God. The title of the lesson this evening, as you can see on the wall behind me, will relate to two ideas, one of which is culture, the other of which is command. And we're going to devote just a few moments to settling in our heart one interesting issue connected to the interpretation of the Word of God. This introductory slide is one that puts before us somewhat of the idea, but really the major thrust won't come for another slide or two. You and I hold, of course, the Bible, and we understand how that God has as His desire that we rightly interpret it. Interpreting the Bible is not a business of make it say whatever you want it to say. Read into it whatever you want it to read. 2 Timothy 2.15 still says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That verse by itself indicates it is possible to improperly divide it. It is possible to unrightly divide it. He wants us to rightly divide it. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2, mention is made about some who handled deceitfully the Word of God. That is to say, there were some individuals who, though they may make reference to it at that time, they were handling it improperly. They were using it to teach what it did not actually teach by authority from heaven. As you close that slide with me, you then will note this. There's a fancy word that you and I, at least from time to time here, it basically means the science of correct interpretation, especially as it connects to the Bible. There are those in our world today who, as they pursue hermeneutics, which is the way you pronounce it, they're making a scholarly study of how to correctly interpret the Bible. And there are times that what they assert is nonsense of the highest order. And there are times that what they, under the branding of this right interpretation, will take the words of the Holy Word of God, and they'll twist and pervert, and they will use various and sundry arguments to ultimately try to assert that it does not mean what it says. Hermeneutics. I use that topic, or at least incorporate that language, among other things, to sound a warning for each of us tonight. We may well think that, well, stuff like that might happen in Chicago, and it might happen in London, and it might happen in Nashville. But we are here in a little town called Cookville or Gainesboro, and maybe at this distance we are unlikely to face issues that really are much like that. But what I would hope that we could at least see is that these things, if they start to happen anywhere, and they already have, they're troubling the brotherhood in various places, and it won't be long before it'll be in our back door too. And it won't be long before congregations in Cookfield, and soon that'll include even us at least having to deal with it. So may we ask, is it lasting command, or is it culture? one of the most common things that these hermeneutical approaches will assert has to do with culture. Let's turn the slide then, and let's use this next slide to at least put that thought before us. I've asked you to note the following. Among the approaches that it seems have gained a great deal of notoriety and a great deal of attention, at least in recent decades, has been one that connects to culture. It would be fair to say that the whole concept of this began over 200 years ago. But at least at first, it was only reserved for a small pocket of individuals, but it has certainly become much more prevalent than that now. It has to do, as you can see on that slide, with culture. And the basic approach goes somewhat like this as individuals read various references and various passages in the Bible, in one way or another, they make the conclusion, well, that applied to them. It addressed a circumstance that they were facing, and it addressed a a matter connected to their culture. And because we live in a different culture, 20 centuries or so later, that means it doesn't directly in the same way apply to us. And therefore, we can sweep, if you please, underneath the rug most of what is asserted and only the major principles at best even apply to us. And one by one, you can almost do away with every detail in the Bible if you're willing to follow that kind of thinking. It is no wonder, then, that this next slide will begin to present what I hope will be some troubling quotations. Now, although it was certainly possible to select many particulars, I chose just a handful. This one reads as follows, and after I've read it, I would like us to revisit it and notice with some clarity some of what is said. Let me quote. The Scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are nevertheless the words of men. Conditioned by the language, thought forms, and literary fashions of the place and times at which they were written. They reflect the view of life, history, and the cosmos which were then current. The church, therefore, has an obligation to approach the Scriptures with a literary and historical understanding. As God has spoken His Word in diverse cultural situations, The church is confident that he will continue to speak through the Scriptures in a changing world and in every form of human culture. Now, as I've stated at the bottom, that was a verbatim quotation from a rather high-ranking Presbyterian official. But I would ask you to notice what he said. He said that that book you're holding is not the Word of God. That's what he said. He said it's the words of men. That's one of the first statements that he made. And in fact, going along with that line, he continued to say this. He said, It must be understood that those writers who were writing were writing underneath the understanding that they had. There was no higher understanding in that culture in terms of asserting to them what they were writing. Did you notice their reference to the cosmos? Their view of the universe is all that they ever knew. Their view of the times and places in which they were writing is all that they ever had at their disposal. Now, lest you think that that particular comment is only some other religious organization, look at the next one. You and I would have a lot of problems with what that gentleman had to say. But this one is just as troubling. He wrote, it is our conclusion that those passages that restrict women's participation in public worship address specific circumstances in the particular cultural context of their first century original audiences. We will no longer use those passages to silence women's voices in our assemblies and who said it? The preacher for the Stamford Church of Christ in Stamford, Connecticut. Now here again is an individual who you and I might suspect ought to have a higher understanding of the Bible and at least a clearer appreciation and perception of the basis upon which it stands. And yet he was quick to say that a host of passages which would otherwise appear to restrict women's roles in the church, we are now sure that they were only cultural in their basis and that therefore they do not apply as written to today and we will no longer use them to restrict in any way women's roles in the church. You can perhaps see at that point that there is yet another quote at the bottom. The very last thing on that page, may I again quote, When discussing the issue of same-sex sexuality in the Bible, it is important to consider the historical and cultural context in which the Bible was written. And as if that's not enough, the person went on to say this Those passages in the Bible that would otherwise appear to restrict or in any way condemn homosexuality, they rather only address the abuse, so we're told, and therefore they do not restrict appropriate homosexuality. That's what hermeneutics has said. That's what some who would borrow the hermeneutical approach have said. By now we can begin to see how all of this works. Any particular topic that the Bible addresses, if it is in some way uncomfortable or in some way distant from what one might wish were the case, all you have to do, according to this methodology, is find a rational way to attach it to the culture of that day And then to make the claim, well, that addressed only the issue then. And since we are in a different culture, it does not apply to us. And therefore, we don't have to be worried with it. Don't you suppose it's possible to take nearly any Bible subject and basically do away with it that way? Let me make a few arguments for some of them. I've listed them for you to consider. Consider baptism for just a moment. Is it not true that the old law of Moses had something to say about ritual washings? That is to say, the Jews were very well acquainted with the requirements of God as it touched the topic of these ritualistic washings. Sometimes it was in connection to various illnesses. Sometimes it was in connection to ceremonial sin. But at the very least, they knew a great deal about it. And so someone says that these New Testament passages that refer to baptism, don't you suppose that that was only God's way of encouraging the Jews to understand the need for being ritualistically clean? And therefore, baptism is a topic for them. And therefore, since we live at a different time and culture, we are not Jewish in our background. Therefore, I'm sure they would be quick to say, you don't then have to be baptized to be saved. That was only for that culture and that day and that time. And therefore, if one follows that logic, you just slid baptism under the rug and it doesn't much matter. And therefore, every New Testament passage that appears to teach and demand it, well, that was for them and it's not for us. You could see the danger. There are those who then would take all those passages that relate to women's roles in the church and all those passages that relate to homosexuality and all those passages that relate to baptism. And what about another one? I've asked you to consider this one. Financial giving. Someone might make this argument. Don't you realize that in that day and time, that culture was known far more for its poverty And therefore, there was this impressive need for the sustenance of the congregation for each individual to contribute. But today, in the United States of America, there is certainly wealth abundantly available from the government and other places. And therefore, should one not therefore arrive at those funds that way? And those that are able to give are far more in a position to be required, and that certainly doesn't include everybody. And therefore, you've just done away with 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. By now, I'm feeling uncomfortable with this. We didn't come to hear hermeneutics taught like that. We're interested in what does the Bible have to say. It's not our interest to find loopholes to slide all the Bible's commands into the culture of the ancient era and then dismiss it. We want to know what is it then that is the proper interpretation of the Bible. How does one know whether a particular passage is culturally connected or if it is a lasting commandment? And thus is the expectation of God until the end of time. As we turn the slide to proceed to the next page, may I be quick to say that I think we have some things that will help us as we strive to properly interpret the Word of God. First of all, it is true that there are some things in the New Testament that were connected to that time. And it was never the intent of God that those things last beyond that day and that time. If we were to look at some of those examples and at least reflect upon what was the case then we might have a basis to then approach other passages as well. Let's consider this one. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, Jesus especially gave this statement. He told His apostles at that point in essence, don't you go to any Samaritan or any Gentile You don't enter in any of their houses, but rather you go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now clearly the Lord gave a very specific commandment. You don't preach to a Samaritan nor to a Gentile. You preach only to Jews. Those who have a history connected to the people of God from the days of the Old Testament, you preach to them. Now you and I know well that as direct and as specific as that command was, it was not lasting because it wasn't that long thereafter until we read verses like Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, where Jesus, again speaking, said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, not just to Jews, in fact, not even merely to Samaritans or Gentiles, but to every creature. And then he continued to say, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. But you'll notice there was a time and a place wherein that Lord's initial mission was only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Therefore, we conclude that there was a specific time and a place wherein that message was appropriate. But it was not age-lasting, and it was not a continuing matter. You'll notice the last passage on that slide in Acts 8, verse number 10. We remember there that Philip, sometime after the church was established, even he is such that he went down to Samaria. So those that were Samaritans, and he preached unto them, and they overwhelmingly accepted the gospel message. Isn't it interesting, then, we have a case in point, an exhibit of a particular text that was only for a particular place and time, but they didn't even the only one. Look at this one. What about circumcision? In Acts 16, verse number 3, for example, you and I will remember that circumcision was an expectation of God in the Old Testament the children of Abraham were expected to be circumcised. Inasmuch as that took place, you and I now notice this. The time came when in Acts 16, Timothy had made the word known that he wished to join Paul and to be a companion of his on the missionary journey. And the first thing the text says Paul did was go have Timothy circumcised. So does that mean circumcision is lasting? Does that mean we are required by God to be saved, to be circumcised? We know that isn't so, because several passages later refer to the fact that God has not bound that on the human family this day. Acts 15, in fact, would directly tell us that among those things that God bound on those first century individuals, circumcision was not one of them. And later in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 19 and following, and even in the Galatian letter, the emphasis was made that those who return to that law and rite of circumcision, you've fallen from grace. If you think that that's the means whereby you are connected to the saving message of truth. So one more time, you notice that circumcision had its day and time, but it was not age-lasting. It may be by now that we can come near the close of that slide and appreciate this. It would seem then that one of the messages that the Word of God would be quick to share with us is that those things which were culturally related are indicated to us by the text in which it occurs and certainly by comparison to other inspired writings that are found in other places in the Bible. The Bible nowhere contradicts itself because it is not the word of men, it is the word of God. You and I would greatly disagree with that first quotation I read earlier. Very little about that's even true. Despite how scholarly that man may have been, despite what intent may have been in his heart, he's just plain wrong about much of it. The Word of God is such that it must be received exactly as that. What is it Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.13? Did he not point out a commendation to them that when you received the Word of God, you received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God which effectually also worketh in you that believe. Oh, how the Thessalonians received it not merely as men's words, but as God's words. In Jeremiah 1, verse number 7, and then again in verse number 9, this statement is made. Jeremiah, I have put my words in thy mouth. Did you notice? He didn't say, I've put my suggestions. I've put my thoughts. I've put my ideas. I've put my words. And therefore, as Jeremiah penned that which had been bequeathed to him... He was writing the Word of God. No wonder then, what therefore I command thee, thou shalt speak. He was told to proclaim and to declare the Word of God. As you and I close that slide, look at this statement. The basic doctrines then that would encompass New Testament Christianity are not culturally dependent they quite frankly never were. Although those individuals at that time, they did live in an old ancient Roman empire and they did live in a day and time far different than ours, far less technological, far less in terms of many of the things we know. The basics of the gospel were not connected to their culture. And therefore, any culture is in need of exactly the same thing. Haven't you always been impressed that as we've studied about Paul's missionary journeys, he could go and preach the same thing in Ephesus that he had taught in Corinth, and that he had taught in Troas, and that he had taught in Antioch, and that he had taught in Philippi, and that he had taught in Thessalonica. It was exactly the same message. And he even warned them about the reality of this. What I proclaim to you is what I've told to them the gospel wasn't then connected merely to Asia Minor because things in Asia Minor were very different than they were, let's say, in Achaia, but they both had the same gospel. That kind of idea is very enriching, and it's also very prompting, isn't it? So whether we live in the southeastern United States in the century in which we live, or whether someone had lived 500 years ago somewhere in Europe, or whether someone had lived a thousand years ago in China, it makes no difference when it comes to the gospel. Although the particulars of those cultures might be quite different, and although the understandings connected to the way one dresses might vary greatly, the basic consideration of modesty, for example, and the basic understanding that would go with response to the gospel would not change in the slightest. One last thing on that slide, then, might be this observation. We've mentioned the gospel so far this evening. Haven't we each, I would think, been impressed with what's required to become a Christian? And how that you might suppose, at least in the mind of men, that that could vary so greatly over the course of cultures how that a rich man in Hong Kong might have to do something different than a poor man in Alaska. But yet there is no distinction. Not in the slightest. In fact, might I invite you to notice a word found in Acts 15, verse number 9. In Acts 15, verse number 9, Paul speaking wrote this and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. No difference. Now in that day and time, there were large distinctions, of course, between individuals. And yet, the inspired writer was quick to say that there was absolutely no distinction and no difference between what was required of them, namely the Gentiles, and what was required of us, namely the Jews. And as that statement was made, how impressive it must have been that the God of heaven would open His arms and embrace exactly in light of precisely the same requirements. Although the Jews frequently felt that they were better, and they looked down upon the Gentiles, they were mistaken in that light. And later in Romans 14, Paul urged them to not look upon things that way. For that reason, today, you and I will boldly proclaim the same plan of salvation. Let's, in fact, observe this. Wasn't it true in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31 that it is there said that all men everywhere must repent? That means it isn't cultural. It's not reserved for only some people. Everybody, everywhere, must repent or else you'll perish. All men everywhere must believe in Jesus, for the Lord said so in John 8, 24. All men everywhere must confess their errors and their sins. The inspired writer said so in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. And all men everywhere must be baptized. Did you notice then it's not culturally connected? And though some today may follow a hermeneutical principle and claim that it is, they are mistaken. God demands everybody then subscribe to that reenactment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And in so doing, they contact His blood and their sins are washed away. It has nothing to do with culture. There's perhaps as one final example that I wished for us to consider this evening to at least address somewhat about this culture. It comes about the middle point of that slide. I would like you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 with me. The modern battle that has been so strongly begun to be waged in light of this hermeneutical principle, has to do with the role of women in the church. I'm sure we're all aware of that. It has garnered a fair amount of attention in Nashville. It has even begun to garner some attention even closer to home than that. But with that in mind, could we ask this question? Many have been the occasions that Paul has been accused of being a chauvinist. He was just against women. That's why he said these things. Let's see what reason he gave. I'll start reading in verse number 11 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. If we pause right there, the words that he has given are clear enough. In any assembly wherein these matters of worship or other things of that variety are taking place, the woman is not to either usurp authority over the man or to teach in this mixed assembly. It isn't difficult to understand what's written. But now notice what is frequently asserted. That culture, we're told, was very different than ours, and with that we would agree that ancient Roman culture, and no doubt women had a very different place in that society than typically a woman does today, at least here in America. And therefore, those who could make that argument, isn't that cultural? Look at the next two verses. The word for that begins verse 13 is a word that carries explanatory force. Paul, why would you say this? For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And he has offered two explanations, two reasons if you please, as to the statements he had just made. Were either of them cultural? Were either of them connected to the culture in which Paul lived? Were either of them connected to the culture that was then present anywhere on earth? Overwhelmingly, the answer is no. Let's look at each one of them. First, the man was formed first, and then Eve. That has no basis in relation to any culture. It's just a basic truth. The man was formed first. But look at the second one. When it came to the events of Genesis chapter 3, the fall that took place in Eden, it was the woman that was deceived, not the man. And for those reasons and those reasons only, that which was the edict, the verdict, the presentation of God, had to do then with these verses. It had nothing to do with culture. And though individuals today have overwhelmingly in many places begun to claim that it is, it never was. It is for that reason that that concept is then used to cast a particular approach on a lot of other verses. Follow me on that point. If one then takes the appreciation to slide some verses out of consideration... What is to prevent us from trying to do that with a host of others? And so, look down one little bit further into 1 Timothy 3. Did you notice the language of verse number 2? This has to do with the qualifications of elders. I suppose you and I might suppose it is evident that one phrase in verse 2 should be read obviously. It says a bishop, which is an elder, then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. And so those who have begun to follow this appreciation have thus found a way to rationalize a woman preacher, a female standing in a pulpit. And it's a mighty short step to then justify, well, that restriction in 1 Timothy 3, 2, that was for that day and time, and there isn't anything wrong with a woman being an elder today. Because women have been liberated, they can obtain all the education a man can. They often are just as bright and smart as a man. Why can't she serve as an elder? And so they nicely give no thought to chapter 3 verse 2, at least that part of it, in exactly the same way you slide verses 11 and 12 of the same chapter under the same rug. The idea is, if one is willing to take this and run with it, you basically could take almost anything that the New Testament would otherwise say and find a way, at least in your own mind, to dismiss it. But wouldn't it be a fearful thing to have Jesus open that very same book on the Day of Judgment and read the very verses that you thought you had dismissed and then ask you the theoretical basis that gave you that liberty. I'd like to close the lesson with Colossians 3, verse 17. That verse reminds us, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. You and I are not in the loophole business. We're not in the business of trying to find a way to excuse verses in the Bible. God said what He meant, and He meant what He said. And it is our business to rightly, dif- rightly interpret it, to rightly divide it, and to thus make use of a verse like Psalm 119, verse 160, which was the lesson text for this evening. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. And you and I are going to stand on that premise. Until our lives here shall be no more. Until there shall be the end of time, whichever comes first. And we will rest on the conviction of the absolute certainty of the Word of God. And when things are cultural, He will tell us. And he, in His Word, He has indicated it. But when He is not given that indication, it is not our liberty to assert that it's cultural. It should be our chore and our loving desire to simply do what He says and to conform our will to His. Let's close our lesson then in that way tonight and offer the Lord's invitation. If there would be anyone that would be subject to that invitation, it'd be our desire to extend it and to embrace and to show the love of God as we perhaps pray on your behalf for sins that are known publicly and for your reinstatement to a faithful position near to the side in faithfulness of our Lord. If we could help you in that way tonight, it'd be our joy, it'd be our desire, and we would love to do that now while together we stand and while we sing.